listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in the show notes, including our toll-free number, which is 1-855-625-8610. Please check out Life on Record, a gift of recorded messages for any special occasion to a loved one. See our show notes for details. The Western states shared fully desperation of industrial labor in the cities of the East Pacific Northwest lumberjacks, harvest migrants in California, Rocky Mountain coal and hard rock minerals all struggled as much and always in more isolation than their brethren in the mills and factories of New England or New York. On June 27, 1905, the East and West Labor met 186 delegates representing 34 labor unions in the middle of the country in the hope of unifying their cause. In a multi-day meeting at Chicago Union Hall, they founded the Industrial Workers of the World, or IWW. Eugene Debs of the Socialist Party greeted Mother Jones. Haywood introduced himself to Tiny Lucy Parsons, the widow of Haymarket martyr Albert Parsons, and now a Chicago labor activist in her own right. Daniel de Leon, head of the Socialist Labor Party, was in attendance, as were Vincent St. John, a much-admired WFM leader of Colorado miners known as the Saint, and the Southwest Fighting Labor Priest Father Thomas J. Haggerty. The IWW was to be a syndicate representing all trade and industries. It would be open to skilled and unskilled workers regardless of race, gender, or nationality. The unemployed would also be welcomed. The working class and the employing class have nothing in common, declared the preamble to the IWW's constitution. There can be no peace so long as hunger and want are found among millions of working people, and the few who make up the employing class have all the good things in life. The founding of the IWW took place only six months after the Bloody Sunday Revolution on January 22, 1905, when a peaceful march to petition uh, Tsar Nicholas II for national representation had ended in bloodshed as soldiers opened fire on protesters outside the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg, killing and wounding hundreds. Russian workers started a general strike, sailors mutinied aboard the battleship Potemkin, and other disruptions to restore Tsar Nicholas was forced to give up some of his authority to an elected parliament and establish civil rights and other reforms. This gave hope to the IWW. Many of the veterans of the WFM could wholly relate with the Russian people who had thrown off Tsar's rule. They believed that in recent labor disputes in the West, they had glimpsed the face of capitalism in its most ruthless guise and that it was as oppressive and inhumane as any old world regime. A huge blow 
came in 1892 to labor when mine owners, a protective association, MOA, had cut wages and increased hours in mines around Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. The union struck several mines reopened using scabs. A Pinkerton agent, Charles A. Seringo, who called himself the Cowboy Detective, had under the name C. Leon Ellison obtained work at the gym mine and infiltrated the miners' union. He became the union's recording secretary, feeding the MOA what it wanted to hear. The union was full of anarchists who planned to destroy the gym mine's company store. In early July came the news of the battle at Homestead with the Pinkerton's barges. At the same time, information came out in the company paper that only the recording secretary would know. Seringo escaped the miners by hiding under floorboards of a boarding house on July 11th. The miners attacked the Frisco mine, set off dynamite charges, and took 60 mine guards prisoners, arresting 130 scabs and forcing them to board a train leaving the state. In response, Governor Norman Wiley, who had declined earlier MOA appeals for troops, declared martial law and sent to Coeur d'Alene both state National Guards and federal soldiers, obtained by order of President Benjamin Harrison. With such military force, mines were reclaimed, scabs were back to work, and protected by soldiers. Vicious reprisals on whole villages of strikers. Strikers were rounded up, including lawyers, bar owners, shop owners, and even judges. 600 were held in wooden bowl pins. Later court cases ruled in the Union's favor. This led to the founding of the WMF in 1893. The WMF fought its first battle at Cripple Creek, Colorado in 1894 in a strike where the MOA tried to overwhelm the new Union with 1,300 armed deputies. The populous governor, David Hansen, wait took the unusual step of calling in the militia to Tell the people who the sent you deputies. here that I have a Again, brace of Colts and can hit a dime at 20 paces. In another strike. This time, WMF strike a copper mine. Violence breaks out on June 6 when a train arrived at the local depot to pick up replacement workers. A bomb explodes, killing 14 scabs and interfering dozens more. Governor James Peabody blamed the WFM, declaring martial law, the militia arrested a large number of WFM men as vagrants. A local vigilante group shut down the WFM Union Hall and several cooperative stores the WFM had helped create. Father Haggerty had once told a group of harassing railroad enforcers in Arizona, the men and women who departed the, the historic 1905 Chicago founding of the IWW became fond of quoting Haggerty, a quaint warning for they were determined to emulate his kind of bravado in their own words and deeds. On January 1st, 1906, Harry Orchard was arrested for the murder of Idaho former Governor Frank Stunenberg. Orchard confessed to the murder and named a cadre of WFM leaders, including Big Bill Haywood, as having conspired with him in the plot to kill Stunenberg. The former governor had 
a decent record on labor relations until 1899 when he was asked President McKinley for federal troops to deal with the local strike. It could be forgiven by Idahoans for the troops, but Washington had dispatched an African-American regiment. Part of their duty was to guard arrested miners. The idea of black soldiers lording it over white prisoners inflamed local sensibilities. In a nighttime extradition of dubious legality, Big Bill Haywood, along with WFM President Charles Moyer and George Pettibone, were seized by authorities in Denver, hustled aboard a train, and carried across the state line to Boise to face murder charges. Bill Haywood was born in Salt Lake City in 1869, the same year that the Golden Spike was driven in just outside nearby town of Promontory, linked America's railroads. His father, a former Pony Express rider, died when Bill was just three and his mother remarried and relocated the family to Ophir, a rough-and-tumble Utah mining camp. When he was seven, he was carving a slingshot and blinded himself permanently in one eye. In 1893, he joined the WFM. A year later, he fell in with the Industrials Coxley's Army, a person of keen native sensitivity. He had been troubled by the Haymarket Affair, especially the executions of November 1887. A decade later, he watched as Pullman's strike brought the country to a halt, at least until the courts and troops intervened. The author, John Reed, wrote of him, quote, His big hands made simple gestures as he explained something to them. His massive rugged face seemed and scarred like a mountain, and as calm radiated strength. He said as he spread his hands wide and said, the AFL organizes like this. Then he would make a rugged, huge fist, lifting it powerfully above his head, saying, The IWW organizes like this. By the time the Stonenberg trial began in May 1907, Haywood, Moyer, and Pettibone had been behind bars for a year. Orchard made claims that were made up. The prosecutor, realizing his claim as false, took a page out of the Haymarket Trail, reading from left-wing labor papers during defense summations. I do not claim that this man is an angel. The Western Federation of Miners could not afford to put an angel at their head. Do you want to hire an angel to fight the Mine Owners Association and the Pinkerton Detectives and the power of great wealth? Oh no, gentlemen, you better get first-class fighting man who has physical courage, who has mental courage, who has strong devotion, who loves the poor, who loves the weak, who hates inequality, who hates it more it is worth with the powerful and the great. Don't be so blind in your madness as to believe that if you make three fresh new graves you will kill the labor movement of the world. A million men will take up the banner of labor at the open graves where Haywood lays it down. And in spite of prisons or scaffold or fire, in spite of prosecution by jury, these men of willing hands will carry it on to victory in the end. Haywood was acquitted as was Pettibone. Charges against Moyer were dropped while Orchard alone took the rap for the Sonberg's killing and drew a life sentence. 
This put the idea that the IWW was a dangerous radical group in the public conscious. This took a toll on Bill, but also made him famous. He toured the nation, giving speeches, playing up his reputation as a roughneck and cementing his role as the nation's leading wobbly. These speeches brought so many people that only Eugene Debs could rival them. 20,000 to 35,000 in a single meeting. The alliance of desperate forces that had convened at Chicago in 1905 to create the IWW did not long adhere. The WFM fell away. Debs would play very little part in the IWW, focusing on his own socialist party. Daniel de Leon had also departed the IWW intent on nurturing his socialist labor party. The IWW membership kept growing. This was due to many factors, including the following unifying the immigrant workers, use of strike reinforcements, innovative mass actions such as the sit-down strike, not accepting no-strike clauses. The IWW sit-down strike in December of 1906 at a General Electric plant in Schenectady was probably the first in the country's history. Well, that same year, a wobbly contingent in Portland, Oregon, won a nine-hour day and wage hike for sawmill employees. In 1907, the IWW realized an impressive 1450 minimum daily wage for all trades at Goldfield, Nevada, and summer of 1909 found Wobblies assisting 8,000 still workers at McKee's Rock, Pennsylvania, in a bloody four-week war against the Pressed Steel Car Company. State police and professional strike breakers, which eventually succeeded winning employer concessions. The IWW continued to change dynamics that usually governed labor capital confrontations. The Wobblies, instead of becoming worn down and losing focus as a labor fight was protracted, only seemed to gather strength. The organization's national leadership did, didn't simply monitor the progress of localized strikes. It championed and publicized specific conflicts until they became national campaigns drawing IWW members from afar to aid a troubled strike. One advantage to the Wobblies had is that an IWW dues card was good for free passage on almost any moving freight manned by sympathetic trainmen, making it possible to bring strike reinforcements to any strike, no matter where it was. In the fall of 1909, the IWW learned of a scam used by predatory employment agencies in Missoula, Montana. They would con itinerant workers by setting them up with jobs, then arrange with foremen to fire them as soon as they earned the fee they owed the agency, so the agency could provide a new employee, thus creating a revolving door. Wobbly speaking out on the scam were arrested. Missoula authorities, however, were not prepared for IWW star Soapboxer Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, a teenager from New York City, slim, attractive with sparkling blue eyes and red hair. She was nicknamed the Red Flame for her politics and Irish good looks. With others, she devised a strategy to break the town 
filling the jails with wobblies who broke the law by making speeches in public, thus draining the city's coffers and overwhelming administrative resources. The plan was effective. The town was forced to convert the local firehouse into a jail in order to house and feed the growing number of people in custody. And as envisioned, the community quickly tired of the bother and expense. The town abandoned the prosecutions and released the prisoners, saying the Wobblies could give as many speeches as they wanted. Some of the men released would return to the lockup at night seeking a meal and a place to sleep after a hard day of organizing. In a Broadway magazine, the author Theodore Drazer spoke of Elizabeth Flynn, an East Side Joan of Arc, a youngster, as sweet as sixteen as ever bloomed with a sensitive flower-like face, but who mentally is one of the most remarkable girls that this city has ever seen. An early convert to the IWW, Flynn was excited to meet some of the very movement personalities she had long admired, Lucy Parsons and Oscar Neves of Haymarket fame, Emma Goldman as well as Alexander Berkman, and the Jack revolutionist Hippolyte Havel, who flirted so shamelessly with her that over dinner at Luchow's that Berkman had to kick his colleague under the table. She was given near-reverential treatment in being understood. Even the roughest Melwab or Western timber beasts that she be respected that her personal reputation remain unassailable. A larger version of the Musula campaign played out soon after in Spokane, Washington, where employers' agents routinely hired lumberjacks and produce pickers and dispatched men across the Idaho border to the silver and copper concerns in Coeur d'Alene. When the local IWW attacked these rigged employment agencies in March 1909, the city council immediately banned the group's speakers. The Wobblies were strong in Spokane with about 1,500 local members, but summer was not a good time for labor organizing in the region because migratory workers tended to be on the move. The union decided to heed the ban and resume the campaign in the fall. Mass arrests started near the end of October. Within days, almost 400 Wobblies were jailed. On November 3rd, police raided the local IWW hall indicted the union organizers they captured for criminal conspiracy. Flynn arrived in the spring of 1910, determined to break the town the same way she had humbled Missoula. She was 19 and pregnant, jailed almost immediately for violating the speech ban. When Flynn came to trial, the jury balked at the very idea of convicting her. Its foreman assured the district attorney, break for Roy's commentary, If you think this jury or any other jury is going to send that pretty Irish girl to jail merely for being a big-hearted and idealistic to mix with all those whores and crooks down at the pen, you've got guests coming. Spokane finally struck a deal with the IWW. The union hall could be reopened, free speech would be allowed, and the employment agencies would be regulated. As Spokane was winding down, another free speech struggle opened in Fresno. They refused the IWW a permit for public gathering and threatened to jail anyone 
not gainfully employed for vagrancy. IWW members flooded to Fresno, bumming rides on freight trains, marching over mountains, singing wobbly songs, or so legends say. In February 1911, Fresno, like Spokane, agreed to meet IWW demands. This, however, put San Diego on the defensive as this was the next battlefront of free speech. On October 10, 1910, a mysterious explosion and fire had destroyed the Times building, killing 21 people. The paper's owner, Harrison Gray, Otis hated unions and was a proud Civil War veteran. At the time of the assault, Otis and his newspaper was leading the fight against closed shops movement amongst Los Angeles trade unions. The labor movement had come rushing to the defense of the men charged with the heinous crime, brothers John and James McNamara. Debs and Gompers believed labor was being set up. Rumors said that Times employees had smelled gas prior to the explosion, and it was believed that Otis was trying to pass the blame of the deaths onto the labor movement. The trial started on October 1911 with a man named Ordy McManigle, who claimed to be the accomplice of the brothers agreeing to testify. James, amid to planning the bomb, explained that he wanted to punish the owners and editors for their attacks on closed shops and did not know the bomb would start a fire. Clarence Darrow was in for a fight with his usual diligence, aided by muckrakers and California native Lincoln Stevens. Their goal once James admitted his guilt was to save the lives of the brothers. Stevens and Darrow arranged a deal with the court where the brothers would provide a full confession admitting that as men of labor they had been driven to violence by the oppressive nature of capitalism in exchange for no death sentence. James was sentenced to life in prison and John 15 years hard labor. Having backed the McNamara's brothers, was detrimental to the IWW and set the mines of the city of San Diego against them, first making it illegal to give soapbox speeches on a strip of streets traditionally used for that purpose. Three months later, they enacted an even stricter law. The IWW and other leftists formed a 2,000-member local free speech league while the Reactionary San Diego Tribune, setting the tone for the war to come, recommended that all demonstrators should be shot down or hanged. First came a brutal nighttime ambush of IWW members riding the rails into San Diego by a small army of vigilantes. Then the editor of the San Diego Herald, who had written sympathetically of the free speech cause, was abducted, driven out of town, and beaten within an inch of his life. Podcast with your family and friends. Please rate our podcast on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you want to contact us to suggest a topic, have a question, or just want to say hi, our contact information is in the show notes, along with our sponsor, the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first.